1: Because there's plenty of wrong things to go around. Let's just dive right in, shall we? So I've seen a couple of very interesting points of view emerge as uh, Pride season has kicked off. And I have to say I'm intrigued. In fact, I believe that there is some validity to this. Uh, James Lindsay, who I follow on Twitter, is, I think he's a super insightful guy. And one of the things that he's pointing out, and I'm just going to ask you to consider this. I'm not saying, hey, he said it, so you have to believe it. But something that he points out that to me makes a lot of sense is that uh, there, there is a dialectic at, at work here. Now, if you're not familiar with the Hegelian dialectic, uh, we see it play out quite often. And that is where there is, uh, there is a problem. There's thesis. You know, someone has been shot. You know, we need to take away all the guns, you know, right? Uh, antithesis. Is, is actually the, the part about we have to take away all the guns. Someone's been shot. There's the problem. Here's the solution. We just disarm everybody. But we know that not everybody's going to go along with that, so uh, synthesis. Well, we'll uh, make everybody register their guns in case, you know, someday we need to know who has what. It's something that we have seen work over and over again. This is how the Overton window is shifted. This is how policies come into play. And it's, it's, it's very much at work in a lot of the woke activism that we see going on right now. Something that James Lindsay points out, and, and I think this is worthy of consideration, is that a lot of what you are seeing, the very highly publicized, shocking examples, uh, I, th- I think of the, the Dodgers and the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, uh, you know, drag troop that's performing, you know, at, at the Dodgers games, or at least that wants to. I honestly don't don't know if they have been or if they've been there or not. But, um. Basically it's it's designed to provoke a reaction. In other words, the the woke mafia is trying very hard to provoke a reaction from you. And it could be something big and overt like, you know, drag queens mocking catholic nuns or it could be something a little less obvious, a little more nuanced. But the bottom line is someone is trying to provoke a reaction. And by just talking about it, sadly, I'm providing at least some reaction. But what James Lindsay is warning is if you do not give them the reaction, just like a bully who's trying to provoke a reaction, they fail. Now, that's, a not, that's not the same thing as burying your head in the sand or sticking your fingers in your ears and closing your eyes and man 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 nah, nah, I can't hear anything or see anything. It's choosing very carefully how you go about defending whatever it is that you're defending. And really what it comes back down to is, what are you defending? Are you defending your right not to be offended? Because there's got to be something more at stake here. Are you defending the family? Okay, now there, that's something of substance. And that's something that, that you, can, you can actually define and you can point out to people. Look, one of the greatest sources of stability within a society is the family. Or at least the intact Family. No family is going to be perfect. We've all got warts. We've all got our problems. But the healthiest possible situation for a child to grow up in is in a home with parents who love each other, who are committed to one another, and who are both present in that child's life to fulfill their responsibilities. Now, look, I know I'm talking some pretty exclusive terms here because, gee, it seems like you're talking about the nuclear family here. You're talking about a man and a woman married you know, in a permanent relationship and raising the children that they created? Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. You know, pretty much the pattern that humanity has followed from the very beginning. The one that for some reason we have suddenly discovered, hey, this is totally wrong and against science, and <laughs> there is no such thing as men or women, and we just need to, you know, throw this all away. But if you're going to defend it, you've got to defend it upon the grounds of look. This is our way of life, or this is our liberty, or this is our ability to practice our religion freely, or to follow our conscience. It can't just be, you know, because these guys are being obnoxious, and they're waving that dang rainbow flag in my face. I get it. It is obnoxious. It's designed to be obnoxious. It's it's supposed to provoke a reaction. But you've got to be grounded enough in principle not to give them the reaction they're hoping for. What, and what the activists really are hoping for is that someone will push back hard, perhaps violently, so that they can then claim that, uh, that prized victimhood mantle. And look at this, see how picked on we are? All the corporations in the world are celebrating us you know, and openly encouraging their customers and everybody else to do it too. But boo-hoo, we are so picked on. So something to consider there. This is not just, you know, a bunch of troublemakers got together and decided to make some noise. There's there's a great deal of sophistication in how this activism is taking place. So don't treat it as just, you know, all the trouble kids are getting together and causing trouble. Now, on that note, I'm also including in today's show notes a thread unroll that I think may be one of the best primers on the sophisticated tactics being used by the woke activists. I picked this up on on Twitter last night. Vocal distance, vocal underscore distance is is the uh, Twitter subscriber who who talks about you know the the Dodgers and the Blue Jays both giving into pressure from woke activists. And maybe you saw Anthony Bass doing his uh, struggle session the other day. I'm sorry. I made an insensitive post on social media, and I have let my team down, and I'm being re-educated. I don't think he used the word re-educated, but I'm using the resources of my team to better understand how I can better interact with the world around me. But it's a very painful thing to watch him go through this this struggle session. But the reason that he had to do this comes down to the kind of tactics, which are, in fact, well-planned actions created by activists in order to extract concessions from whomever they target. Fascinating stuff here. Now, the first step he talks about here is power mapping, which is a tool not only to identify who holds that power, but crucially, who holds influence over that person and therefore who to target with your direct actions. And this is from an actual book called Beautiful Trouble, A Toolbox for the Revolution, that uh, describes how to pick a person to target. It's how to determine who has the power, who has the influence, and then to uh, how to make them give you what they want, what you want. How they're vulnerable to pressure. So keep in mind, the woke pay, want to take power, and to do that, they have to know who to take it from. They have to know how to do it. Power mapping tells them who has power. Now, there's some great diagrams that that illustrate this. It's not a long read. I mean, it'll take you you know a few minutes to go through, but. Note that when, when, they're, when they look at the target, things that they're looking at are things like, uh, okay, what are we looking at? Uh, who are their friends, their church, their family, who provides their funding? Everyone, the woke are looking for any angle they can find to put pressure on the person that they're targeting. And once they map out the power dynamics, who has the power, where are the pressure points of those people? They have to figure out, okay, who do we target? See, sometimes the target has no direct weaknesses, so they have to go after them indirectly. That means the woke, uh, choose your target wisely. Because in their words, you might not have enough power to push your primary target at first, but your actions may help you identify a secondary target that can be pressured to leverage their influence on the primary target. And if they do this correctly, they can take smaller, more vulnerable targets that could be pressured and leveraged to go after the much bigger targets. Kind of like a domino effect, where a small domino can knock over progressively larger dominoes. So they map the power dynamics, they figure out who has power, figure out where that person's pressure points are, both in professional and private life, and who they can pressure in order to build leverage and momentum to go after the main target. This is a quote from the book Beautiful Trouble. You might not have enough power to push your primary target at first, but your actions may help you identify a secondary target, an individual or group that can be pressured to leverage their influence on the primary target, just like dominoes. Once they pick a target, they analyze the spectrum of allies. Now, the idea behind that spectrum of allies is that society isn't divided into those who are for you or against you. Society is a spectrum of various opinions on all sides, and the woke want to know who stands where. So they divide them up into five different categories. Active allies who will fight with them, passive allies who agree but don't act, neutrals, passive opposition who disagree but don't act, and then active opposition who actively fight them. And the goal is to shift each group over just one notch on the spectrum. So they want passive opposition to become neutral, neutral to become passive allies, and the passive allies to become active allies. Because if each group moves over just one notch, that shifts the entire spectrum. So the Dodgers, for instance, were passive allies. So allowing the uh, the basically the drag queens to come and perform... Uh, but not hostility to Catholics. That's really what they were trying to do, but they shifted them into being active allies. Pretty clever stuff. Blue Jays pitcher Anthony Bass was an outspoken active activist opposition who was shifted one notch into passive opposition and had to be quieted. Again, if you want to understand what's happening, this may be one of the best articles that you can look at. It's in my show notes, which you can access at thebrienhideshow.com. These are the show notes for June 2nd, 2023. Back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: Just a quick shout-out here to my sponsors, including Climbing Upward. That would be my friend, the the inestimable Dr. John C. Pulver. You really should check out his work. I've been delving into his book, Growing Beyond Your Family of Origin Experience. And i got to tell you, I, I feel like I was pretty blessed. I feel like I've got a good family, and yeah, I learned so much. There, there's so much that, uh, that suddenly it's like, oh, wow, yeah, that's that's a dynamic that I have seen. And uh, you might just feel a whole lot more normal after taking a look at, at his take. Again, that's uh, climbingupward.com. There's a link to it in the show notes. TMCPnation.com, Borelli.com, lifesavingfood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. All right. I wanna I want to share with you a topic that's going to make some people really uncomfortable, but it's one that I think it's a topic that needs to be broached. Brandon Smith has a great article on alt market.us. The death of Jordan Neely or why vigilantes are a good thing. I know there are people who are like, oh, vigilanteism is always bad, but I want you to hear Brandon's explanation. And, and again, I understand for some people this is going to sound, you know, like, wow, that's so radical, but he's not celebrating the death of this individual on the New York subway. But he's pointing out a truth that uh, is, is both painful and unpopular enough, but it still needs to be spoken. Okay, mainstream media is never going to touch this. First, Brandon reminds us in November 2021, the political left was frothing at the mouth in anticipation of the verdict against a conservative 17-year-old named Kyle Rittenhouse, who had used a firearm in defense against a mob of BLM supporters trying to kill him in Kenosha, Wisconsin. With the few shots that Rittenhouse fired from his AR-15 rifle, he managed to hit a convicted pedophile, a convicted domestic abuser, and a third assailant with a decade-long record of theft and violence. Now, the first two died, the third survived, the rest of the mob ran away. Statistically speaking, Brandon asks, how is this even possible? Apparently, you can't spit in any direction at a BLM or Antifa protest without hitting a hardcore criminal. And it proves that leftist mobs are often made up of the worst kinds of people. The kind of people attracted to riot environments because of the opportunities they provide to satiate criminal tendencies. All while those psychopaths pretend to be fighting for a cause. So his point is, Rittenhouse did the world a favor that day. When Rittenhouse was acquitted on all charges, leftists were furious. The corporate media, even the White House, had spent the better part of a year trying to demonize Kyle Rittenhouse as a racist, even though no one who got shot was a minority and a right-wing extremist. In fact, even now, many on the political left still argue that Rittenhouse should be punished if only because his vindication in court might lead to even more acts of what they call right-wing vigilantism. So Brandon Smith says, my question here is, what's wrong with vigilantism? Since the media is going to conflate self-defense with vigilantes, let's really get to the root of the issue here. If a person or organization is belligerently opposed to self-defense and Good Samaritans, he says, I have to wonder, is it because they have their own criminal intent? When we're talking about the, the moment a threat has been presented to innocent people, is it not incumbent upon bystanders to stop that threat if they are able Now, there are many critics out there with malicious intent that want to turn this into a purely legal issue. But he says, I don't care about that. What I care about is the moral issue. Is it moral to stop a dangerous person from threatening and harming others? Or is it morally superior to simply sit back and do nothing until the authorities arrive? So in the case of Jordan Neely, the media once again blames the people taking action to stop a violent criminal terrorizing the public rather than blaming the criminal and his behavior. The narrative trend specifically admonishes the concept of of vigilantism with outlets like ABC claiming that vigilantes disproportionately target marginalized communities. By the way, I have to wonder, are criminals marginalized communities? Certainly uh, sociopaths and psychopaths are uh, a minority in society. But I don't know that that's the kind of minority. Well, we need special protections for these folks. <laughs> it's like, no, we don't, because they prey upon other people. Nevertheless, Brandon Smith says, in other words, according to leftists, if you move to defend yourself, a criminal who is against a criminal who is a minority, you're probably an extremist and a racist. Now they certainly want blood when it comes to Daniel Penny, the Marine veteran who stepped in to stop Neely as he allegedly threatened multiple passengers trapped with him on a New York subway train. Penny was arrested on manslaughter charges and subsequently released on bond awaiting trial. But in a city like New York, it's clear the goal of Democrats is to politicize the event as much as possible. Like Kyle Rittenhouse, they want Penny to pay not because of what he did, but because of what he represents to them. Now, he says, if you're not, if, Brandon says, if you think I'm not, a, or if you think I'm exaggerating, rather, he says, just take a look at race grifter Al Sharpton's argument that Penny must be prosecuted because if not, it sets a precedent For vigilantes. Now Brandon points out it's important to keep in mind that video evidence shows at least two other passengers on that train moving to help Penny restrain Neely. And by the way at least one of them was black. While other passengers reportedly thanked Penny for stopping the man. That's not the behavior of people who just witnessed a murder. That's the behavior of people who were just saved from a lunatic. Unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, depending on your point of view, Penny's chokehold may have led to Neely's death, according to medical examiner reports. Now, the media has gone to great lengths to paint Neely as this happy-go-lucky street performer that made people smile, but who also had mental health issues, just an innocent homeless guy who was misunderstood. Of course, they're leaving out that Neely had at least 42 prior arrests at the age of 30. In 2015, he kidnapped a seven-year-old girl and dragged her down a street. He was arrested, by the way, but only served four months in jail. In 2019, he punched an elderly man in the face without cause. In 2021, he punched an elderly woman in the face without cause as she exited the subway, breaking her nose and orbital bone. Neely had also been captured on video attacking people in the streets of New York. And the mainstream media, as usual, has been busy obscuring Neely's criminal record, just like they did with George Floyd, and elevating his childhood tragedies instead, including the murder of his mother. In fact, their spin is reminiscent of the Audrey Hale trans shooter event. We're supposed to feel bad, but only for the people served by the media narrative. The truth is that many of us have tragedy in our history, but that doesn't mean we're justified in taking it out on innocent bystanders. This was a man asking for trouble, and he found it. It's really that simple. Brandon Smith says mental illness and poverty are fast becoming the go-to excuses for the dismissal of violent behavior, especially when a marginalized person is the perpetrator. It's a way to divert blame from the criminal and place it in the lap of society, a homogenous conception that can't ever really be punished for everything. Thus, there is no justice because the criminal is always the victim unless he's a conservative, and the heroes are always the villains for acting without government permission. So that said, if we really want to place the blame on problems of society and how they relate to Jordan Neely, it might be prudent to acknowledge that Democrat states like New York have a high circulation when it comes to violent criminals. Prisons seem to be a revolving door, and activist district attorneys tend to reduce sentences for offenders if they happen to be a minority. Neely should have been locked up in an asylum, but we don't really do that much in America anymore, which might be part of the reason why violence is a continuing problem in our nation. We used to separate such people from normal, healthy communities. And as we back away from this practice, violence has been on the rise. There's at least a correlation that needs to be investigated. And let's not forget that New York police in particular have argued in court they're not legally required to intervene in the middle of a criminal act and they often ignore crimes committed on the subways. They say they don't have a duty to protect and they're only there to clean up the mess after the crime has happened. And by the way, the U.S. Supreme Court has supported this argument in the past. So if the system's not going to lock up violent offenders and the dangerously unstable to keep law-abiding people safe and the police are not going to save you if you get attacked by one of these crazies, what other option do you have but to take them out? The government has left you with no choice but vigilantism. So if America needs anything today... It needs good people who will do the right thing regardless regardless of the circumstances or consequences. That would mean more vigilantes, not more cowards and pacifists hiding behind the law. You don't need permission to defend
0: yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: Look, I get it. That that last segment may have been a challenge for some. And, and I want to be really clear about something here. I say this from, from a very mild position of authority. I have, have taken a lot of uh, self-defense training, uh, both firearms-related, martial arts-related, and, and I don't think anybody in their right mind would take lightly... Harming another person, whether it's through use of lethal force or less than lethal force, I think it's actually a good thing that our psyche hesitates to inflict harm on another person. And I get it. For some people, the idea that, you know, I could never harm another person. I get that. And if that's what your conscience tells you, I can actually respect that. At the same time... I don't think that there's anybody that that I see glorying in the fact that, yeah, this Jordan Neely got what was coming to him, you know, and it was a good thing, and we're giving fist bumps and, you know, cheers all around, high fives. It's a regrettable necessity, but it's a regrettable necessity that happened because Mr. Neely's actions set the whole sordid thing in motion. It wasn't a matter of some opportunistic vigilante out there hunting for him. It was people who were forced into a situation they didn't want to be in and forced to take decisive action, which unfortunately resulted in Mr. Neely's demise. And disturbed as he may have been been, and violent as he may have been, that's still a tragedy. And it's tragic to see people who are crushed by the enormity of the consequences of their bad choices. But it's still rather... Acknowledge that, yes, this Marine, Daniel Penny, I'm grateful he was there. I'm sure the people on that subway car were grateful that he was there. And in no way can we allow this to be spun into, well, the only reason he did what he did was because he hates black people. That's a load of horse apples. And we need to emphatically shut that kind of accusation down right at the get-go. That's not the case. I think Brandon Smith makes a very good point. When government makes it clear, hey, we're not here to protect you. Well, then who is? I don't want to get too esoteric here, but uh, your right to self-defense is a natural right. Meaning it exists with or without government. Every living creature will seek to defend its life. Now, because we are sentient beings and because we have... uh, uh, a little bit of brain power on our sides, we actually have tools that are available to us. Tools that create parity of force that allow us to, to protect ourselves. That's not a bad thing. And people who accept that responsibility, I can tell you firsthand from having attended many different, uh, you know, self-defense academies, the people who are serious about this are not people out there with a Rambo complex looking for some situation to interject themselves into. They understand very well. In fact, they probably understand better than most. That The best gunfight is the one that you never got into. It's the one you avoided because you were paying attention and you saw trouble before it was unavoidable. That's part of situational awareness, which they also teach. You don't hear much about that. It's uh, They're just teaching you how to kill people and win gunfights, which is true. You know, at a good self-defense uh, school, a good shooting school, They will teach you how to kill people and win gunfights, which sounds brutal, but they also teach you when it is appropriate to do so and when it isn't. And sadly, in a world such as ours, there are times where it is sadly necessary for bad people to be stopped by good people who have the means and the willpower to do it. But we've had a lot of people that have been trained into this idea, well, you know, but without permission, and I don't know, it's, you better leave that to the professionals. Look, the cops will come if you call 911. They'll get there eventually. I mean, they'll come as fast as they can. They'll bring friends, but they're, they're not going to be there in that moment of need. So if you're serious about protecting yourself or protecting the people who are closest to you, then the responsibility falls to you first and foremost. And that's not a responsibility that everybody wants to shoulder. I get that. I'm not saying you're less of a person, you're less of a man if you don't do that. But to stand in the way of people who have accepted that responsibility or to portray them as somehow being bloodthirsty opportunists out there, you know, trying to just look for any excuse to have a showdown at high noon, please spare me the drama. What people call ruthlessness, with the ability to respond with violence where it is appropriate, is actually decisiveness. But here's the crazy thing. Unless, unless you have been on the receiving end of violence, and I'm talking even controlled violence, like in a training environment, you can't really understand how and when it is appropriate to use it. So, uh, my friend John used to tell me this, and I, I think it's, it's really good. His grandpa told him, learning how to box is a great thing because it will teach people when it is appropriate to punch somebody in the mouth and when it isn't. But to understand that, you kind of have to experience what it's like to get punched in the mouth. Now, in a controlled environment like a boxing ring, you know, where you've got a mouth guard and gloves and maybe headgear, that's a good thing. Okay, they do the same kind of thing in, in, a, in a training environment for shooters, when you learn how to handle a firearm defensively, I mean, you can learn the basics of firearm manipulation, loading, reloading, clearing malfunctions, all that kind of stuff, presentation from the holster, marksmanship, that's great. But to really understand when and how it's appropriate, you have to be put into the stressful situation of, of facing an actual living, breathing opponent. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, they're shooting real bullets at each other, but there are things called simunitions. There's force-on-force training and it's it's very stressful and learning to think through that stress and learning how to uh, to solve the problem even if you are injured maybe you've been shot and you've lost the use of an arm or you've lost you know your sight in one eye or something but to continue on and to finish the fight you have to train in order to to understand how that's done it's hard and some people's ego can't handle the fact that, wow, I really don't know how to do this, or I suck at this, and I don't want to appear incompetent in front of my peers or in front of strangers out there on the range. But you gotta be willing to, you got to be willing to suck. you got to be willing to, to get out there and, and look like a fool in front of other people who know what they're doing in order to become competent. And the only people who can do that are people who are willing to set their egos aside and be teachable. Sorry, this kind of turned into a a lecture on, you know, this is why you should get training. But if if there's a takeaway from what I'm saying here, that's exactly what it is. I know a lot of people who buy guns, collect guns. Oh, yes, yeah, I got this huge room filled with them and so forth. That's great. What kind of training do you have? And if the answer is, well, who needs training? You need training. Any person who thinks that they may one day wield a gun in self-defense needs training. And here's the ironic thing. The more trained you are and the better the quality of your training, the less likely it is that you will ever have to draw a firearm in anger or in self-defense. And it comes down to because you will be aware of trouble before it ever becomes unavoidable. I know the chances are pretty rare that you're going to be a victim of a violent crime. But I'm looking at the odds and based on some of the things that I'm seeing, it looks, like, uh, it looks to me like violent crime is kind of being given a nod and a wink as long as it's being carried out by the, quote, right people. So if there's a time to get serious about protecting what's near and dear to you, this is probably that time. If you wait until the balloon goes up, in the words of Boston Tea Party, it's going to be too, great, too, uh, too late to grow a penis, Later. You need to you need to make sure you know what you're doing ahead of time. You need to stay in practice. And by the way, that doesn't mean that, you know, from then on you're gonna walk around the world with that shifty, steely eyed gunslinger, you know, side eye at everybody and, you know, wolf staring every person you meet in the grocery store. You will have heightened awareness. You won't walk around in what's called condition White, where you're just daydreaming and thinking about anything but where you are and what's going on around you. You'll be in what's called condition Yellow, which is a state of heightened awareness of what's happening around you. But there's, you know, no particular threat that you see at that time. You notice the good things as well as the kind of questionable things. Okay, those two shady guys or two shady looking guys are watching me pretty closely. Or their movements seem to correspond with my own. Maybe I should keep an eye on that. See, you'll notice that kind of stuff. You can avoid potential trouble. But you'll also notice the good things. You'll notice the elderly couple, you know, smiling at each other as, as they uh, walk in the door, the little secret glance that they gave each other. They, they have a little inside joke here. You may not be in on it, but you see the beautiful stuff too. I guess my point is simply this. Why would a person, you know, want to be trained? Why would they want to have that awareness? Well, the answer ought to be pretty obvious. You're training for and preparing for life. Living life and protecting what is most important in life and enjoying life. Yeah, it's a, it's a very pro-life attitude, believe it or not.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I really got off on a tangent today, and I'm sorry, but uh, I've said what's in my heart. Now let's... uh, Let's move on to a couple of other things. couple articles I want to touch on. I'm including a great article from Judge Andrew Napolitano in today's show notes. I know the corporate media isn't exactly cheering last week's Supreme Court ruling against the EPA. Still, it's very good news for property rights. And Judge Napolitano lays out exactly how government attacks free will when it assaults property rights. And it's, it's really nice to see some of these regulatory agencies being... Uh, how can I put this? Reined in? <laughs> you know, it's it's a good thing. I hope you'll check that out. Also, I got to give a hat tip to my friend Ruben for passing along a brutal but honest take from Alex Berenson. I don't know if, if you can remember this. It's been two years since we entered the second half of, of 2021. And that's really where the pressure was, was the worst. That was, I think, the worst phase of the COVID crisis because this is where you had individuals... Not just uh, advocating, but actively agitating for the punishment of the unvaxxed. I know there are people who want to pretend, well, now that really didn't happen, but it was jab or job. We need to separate these people from society. We need to banish them from our stores, banish them from our restaurants. No flights, no medical care, put them in camps, take their children away. Oh, you think I'm joking? But there were people very openly advocating those things. We've kept the receipts. And Alex Berenson says, look, there comes a point where, you know, I can be forgiving. But he says, I also have a shelf life as to how far that uh, that uh, forgiveness extends. And, and, and we come up on that shelf life. He says, three years in, the bell has rung. I don't expect Covidians and vaccine fanatics to apologize. But he says, the ones who are so deluded as to think that they still should be judging us. He says, I'm done with them forever. Now, that may seem like a really hard line to draw. But again, I want to remind you that the people he's talking about are the people who were willing to deny you every one of your human rights because you wouldn't do what they thought was best. And some of them have seen the light. I have seen a few people that have come forward and said, you know what? I was dead wrong about that. I regret that I said this. I regret that I advocated for these kinds of things. And I tend to be forgiving toward those people, and I think we all should be. A lot of people were victimized by the fear that was just mainlined into their veins every day from every corner. Virtually every information source was doing its best to convince us this is so deadly, this is so dangerous. Why? Why won't people do more? Alex Barron says, look, we all lost friends, we all lost relatives, not to COVID, but we lost them to the government and media fed lockdown panic and then to the rancor over mRNA vaccines. We lost friends that told us we were stupid and selfish. We didn't understand science or vaccines or we were risking our lives and theirs out of pure spite, maybe out of fear of needles. Yeah, that's that's a Keith Olbermann trope right there. That government was right to make us choose between our jobs and an experimental biotechnology that we shouldn't be allowed in movie theaters or stores or restaurants or planes. He says, and then they stopped talking to us at all. They disinvited us from family gatherings and parties. They said our children couldn't play with theirs. They looked away when they saw us on the street. He says, now, you might have reached out to some of them. He says, I did. Not to convince them, that was impossible, but simply to say, hey, I'm still the same person. I don't want to fight about this. We don't have to talk about it. Except they wanted to talk about it, to vent, to let us know how immoral and wrong we were. In fact, he says, a person he considered a friend told him, everyone in medicine thinks you're a fool, After Alex had suggested maybe children shouldn't get the jab. He said some other things too. And he says, oh, by the way, did I mention I was a guest at his house when he told me off. I would have walked out, but we were with our kids and I didn't want to embarrass them. He says, but I probably should have walked out. And the anger that we felt peaked in the second half of 2021. Now, people were still scared of COVID in the second half of 2021. A lot of people still thought the mRNAs worked. Why? Alex says, I don't know. It was obvious they'd failed, not just to him, but to the vaccine companies and the government, which were pushing more and more shots, twisting the word vaccine beyond recognition. But his point is, it's not the second half of 2021 anymore. We are halfway through 2023, in the two years since we mRNA skeptics faced frantic abuse, the mRNA countries have had multiple COVID waves despite near-complete vaccination of adults over 65. Countries like Canada and South Korea and Australia, where 99% of people over 70 were vaccinated by the beginning of 2022, had more COVID deaths in 2022 than ever before. So if that's vaccine success, he says, well, I would hate to see failure. But the bigger philosophical issue is that trying to destroy people and undo basic civil liberty protections over a respiratory virus was a titanic mistake, and it would have been, even if COVID had been significantly more dangerous than it actually was. But he says, let's put that fact aside and just focus on the nuts and bolts three years in. At this point, he says, how do I put this politely? We can all agree that uh, maybe the mRNAs were not the panacea that we were told, and that maybe the hysteria around COVID was a little overdone. But he says, here's the part that stuns me the truly jaw-dropping aspect of where we are now. A lot of those people who got on their high horses two or three years ago, they won't get off. Forget apologizing and asking our forgiveness. They're still shunning us. They cannot possibly still believe they were right, so they must just be too afraid to admit the truth, which makes sense. They were cowards from the beginning, hiding in their apartments and houses, behind their masks and face shields, following useless rules and rituals. And then when the miracle shot arrived, they were desperate for it to save them. So he says they were cowards. Cowardice is forgivable. And they were wrong. And being wrong is forgivable. But he says at this point, their inability to admit the truth, if not to us, at least to themselves, that's not forgivable. That's, that's where he stands. As of May 2023, he says, I no longer expect apologies from anyone If my friends want to pretend the last three years didn't happen, I'm okay pretending. But he also says I will never really trust them again unless they admit the truth or at least show some understanding of how wrong they were. But he says when you have long histories with people and you know their flaws and they know yours, you have to make allowances just as they do for you. But he says what I'm not willing to do any longer is suffer their disapproval. He says, I've quietly extended olive branches over the last few months to a number of folks, but what I've realized is my willingness to turn the other cheek has a sell-by date, and it's here. Three years in, anyone who still presumes to judge those of us who were proven right has shown himself to be not just a coward, but a fool. He says, as my dad used to say, forever is a long time, and I don't have enough friends to lose them lightly, but I'm done with these people. I'm not encouraging you. You should go and do likewise. But I think he does have a point worth considering. Do you want to continue close ties with people who, you know, would continue to, to judge you and, and to treat you as if uh, your rights and your life are somehow worth less simply because you didn't buy into the same hysteria that they did? I know. The thought, the thought of letting a friendship go is, is a very painful thing. I think back to a time in high school, where my best friend and I in high school, and we were tight. We were really tight, and we're sitting there, and our 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 teacher was going on about something, and and one of us or the other, my friend or I, said, "Yeah, well, we're we're best friends, and we always will be." And I remember my teacher, Mr. B, just laughing at us, like, "You guys, sure you're all buddy buddy now, but he says you give yourself ten years, you won't even know each other." He was right. And it's, and it's hard to see, you know, a friendship come and go. Some of them end, you know, on just terms of, well, you know, we have different directions we're going. We're, we're headed one way, and you're headed another, and that's okay. Go with God, you know, with my blessing. Sometimes people that once were your people just are no longer your people. And that doesn't mean that they're evil or they're stupid or they're irredeemable, but it's best to just move on. Now, that can be a lot more tricky with family members. I'm inclined to, to think that there are times, especially where family is concerned, that maybe the better thing to do would be to exercise some humility, swallow your pride, and do what it takes to preserve those familial relationships rather than, you know, be right in the satisfaction of, well, we haven't talked in 20 years, but at least I know I was right. A lot of people take that certainty to the grave along with a fair amount of regret. I think the biggest lesson that we can learn, though, is that some people under pressure and particularly under authoritarian kinds of pressure, are going to go in the wrong direction. They will be the people who will rat out and turn in Anne Frank and her family in their hiding place. Yeah, I'm speaking figuratively, but you also know that uh, the kind of witch hunt (laughs) that I'm describing could take a lot of different forms. And when people have shown you their true colors, you probably take note of that and believe
0: them. This is The Brian Hyde Show.